Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, well, it's uh, my privilege to, to be here with you guys this morning. I um, and my church have been praying for you. I know that you have prayed for us on occasion, and it's cool. You know, I've, uh, I've met uh, several of you at uh, different times at the Five Stone Conference, and when, whenever there's a, uh, a church that you're praying for, one of the Five Stone churches particularly, it's good to meet the people and get a sense, oh, you know, these are the people we've been praying for. And so um, I'm happy to be able to uh, be here and uh, bring a message from God's Word to you this morning. Uh, a note on that. Uh, the, the message that I am going to give is not a message that, you know, where I have some sort of inside information and, you know, Gordon got me and he said, now this is something they really need to hear, anything like that. So if, uh, if uh, any of this hits home, uh, and it should hit home in some ways, um, it is uh, not something that is calculated uh, other than by the Holy Spirit, of course. But um, it, it's also something that the, the passage that I'm going to be preaching from is actually a little bit of a rebuke. And uh, I don't sense that this is probably going to be a major rebuke for you. I think that you're probably going to agree with the rebuke and it will be uh, more of an encouragement to you. So uh, let, me, let me pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed yourself to us uh, in Jesus Christ to which your word testifies. And uh, we come before you this morning as uh, needy, as continuing to struggle against the flesh and uh, in as much need of you as we have ever been in. And so as we turn to your word and as we look to you, we pray that you would edify us with the, the truths of the gospel. And we ask these things all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, in many ways, there is a lot to the Christian faith, and uh, this shouldn't surprise us because the Bible is a relatively big book, a collection of books, in fact, and it has a lot to say about a lot of different things. And uh, we know that our faith in Christ impacts our uh, parenting, it impacts how we work, it impacts our uh, friendships. Uh, there is a mission to which we have been called. There is a set of uh, beliefs or doctrines that we are called to embrace. And uh, there is quite extensive teaching in the Bible on a number of subjects. Uh, if we think about the various doctrines in Scripture, we believe that uh, God exists as a trinity, that there is a unity and a plurality to God, that he is uh, one in his nature and three in persons. We believe that the Bible is God's word, that humankind is uh, sinful and in need of salvation. Uh, we believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for 
for the sins of his people. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a he and not an it. Uh, We believe that uh, Christ established the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and that Christ will come again. And, And there are all of these things, all of these essential points of Christian doctrine that Uh, all Christians believe. Of course, there are those who would profess to be Christians who might not believe some of those things that I just talked about, uh, but but all true Christians believe those things. Uh, And then there is an entire uh, other set of things where uh, Christians have legitimately disagreed. So our our, uh, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, at least historically, uh, have baptized infants, whereas uh, people in more Baptistic traditions uh, like ours believe that baptism only comes upon a profession of faith in Christ. Uh, There are some Christians who believe that the miraculous gifts that are described in the New Testament, things like um, being enabled by God to uh, miraculously speak in a language that you didn't know before, or uh, being given the ability to uh, miraculously heal someone. Uh, There are some Christians who think those miraculous gifts are operational today. There are others who believe that those were foundational for the establishment of the church in the beginning, and uh, that they are not generally in operation today. Uh, and, and those secondary matters are, uh, it's not that they're not important questions. I think that the mistake that some Christians make is to look at certain things like that and say, okay, well, uh, those aren't essential, so therefore they're not important. But uh, anything that the Bible teaches us is important by virtue of the fact that it is God who has uh, given us those, those truths. And um, Uh, And and nevertheless, these are points about which there has been disagreement. And so the question is, where do we draw the line on these kinds of things? And uh, what is of uh, critical and essential and necessary uh, importance and what is of uh, secondary or perhaps even uh, tertiary importance? And so uh, let's open our Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we will be looking at verses uh, 6 through 10. I will also look a little bit at 1 Corinthians 15, so if you want to put, uh, use one of those ribbons in your Bibles to mark both places or something, that would be good. Uh, The the book of Galatians is a book in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul, who was a a former persecutor of Christians, but uh, he became very zealous and passionate for um, the, the, the proclamation of the gospel. And in his zeal, he preached the gospel and he established churches throughout the then known world, throughout the area of Asia Minor. Uh, the book of Galatians then is a letter that Paul wrote to churches the, that he had planted in that area. And he uh, wrote that letter in order to warn them about false teaching that was taking place there. And uh, this false teaching threatened to undermine the teaching that he himself had uh, presented to, to them. And Paul learned 
that uh, this false teaching was going forth, going forth and it was influencing the churches. So he writes in Galatians to address that problem. Now, when we think about false teaching, we could think about different levels of false teaching. So let's say uh, that I'm teaching, which I am, so that's not hard to imagine. And, uh, and let's say that I'm teaching on creation and how God created human beings to exercise dominion over the earth and how we have uh, authority over the other creatures of the earth. And I, and I mentioned sort of in passing as I'm teaching that, I say, uh, I talk about how God created the land animals on the fifth day and I go on and but if you're astute, you know that God actually didn't create the land animals on the fifth day, right? It was the sixth day. And so, I, I, is that false teaching, right? I mean, I, I'm teaching, and I uh, taught you something that wasn't quite true. So, uh, it, you know, it's a false teaching of, of a sort. But is it the kind of false teaching with which the Apostle Paul is concerned? Or... Uh, maybe someone is teaching and they are teaching on the story of David and Goliath. And in the process of teaching on David and Goliath, they say, okay, well, the main point of this story here in uh, 1 Samuel 17 is that we should have faith like David, right? Well, I don't believe that's the main point that we should take away from the story of David and Goliath. I think the main point is something like uh, God is so powerful that he can defeat the entire Philistine army with nothing but a young man with a sling and a stone, and therefore God is able to powerfully deliver his people. Right? So the, the story, the main point of the story is to communicate something to us about God. It's not that to uh, exhort us to have faith like David. Now, uh, whether you agree with me or not, just pretend you do. And uh, the, the, so, so the guy gets the main point of the story wrong. Is that the kind of false teaching with which the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament authors uh, are concerned? Or um, to sort of think about the other end of the spectrum, we could imagine that someone might get up and teach something like this. God does not exist. Material reality is all there is. Or perhaps uh, there are many conceptions of God that are out there. And whatever your opinion is about who God is, that's true to you. And all roads ultimately lead to the same place, right? So, so that would be a category of teaching that from a biblical perspective would be clearly and seriously false teaching. Um, but, but that false teaching, it's in a different category, right? It, that's in a different category than if I misspoke and I said that God created the land animals on the fifth day, right? It's, it's one thing to make that sort of mistake. It's another thing to teach explicitly that certain claims in the Bible are uh, false. And, and so again, the question is, where do you draw the line? And it's sort of a complicated question. It's not always clear uh, where to draw the line. From a teacher's perspective, 
I want to stay as far away from the line as possible, right? I don't want to uh, unintentionally misspeak or speak uh, or teach something that isn't true. Uh, I don't want to sprinkle in a, a little error with my messages. And, and so if I, if I am teaching and maybe I'm not sure about something that I'm teaching, if I'm only 65% certain that this interpretation is the correct interpretation, then I at least want to convey that truth, that I'm, I, I believe this is what it means, but I'm not absolutely certain. And, uh, and so that's from the perspective of the teacher. You want to be uh, absolutely faithful in teaching. From the perspective of the hearer, if I'm uh, sitting out with you, uh, we recognize that we're probably not going to agree with everything that every teacher uh, will, will say. And there might even be times this morning when you might wonder if uh, something that I am saying is uh, correct. And, uh, and I'm conscientious about this. I mean, one of the core values of the church we planted is we are seeking uncompromising biblical faithfulness, which is uh, similar to your first core value, proclaiming what? Proclaiming truth, right? And, and so we are seeking uncompromising biblical faithfulness, but we are not maintaining uncompromising biblical faithfulness as though we have arrived. Right? We understand that we are fallen, that we're sinful, that we are prone to error, that we sometimes um, make mistakes and we're finite and all of that. So, so it's not abnormal to question things that a teacher might say. It's not abnormal to have some level of either error or maybe it's just an improper nuance uh, that sort of creeps into Christian teaching and uh, all teachers make mistakes, all teachers have blind spots in their knowledge, all teachers are finite human beings. Um, but again, uh, where do you draw the line in terms of what constitutes dangerous false teaching? The uh, churches in Galatia to whom Paul is writing are in danger of false teaching. What exactly is it that made this teaching so dangerous? And uh, Paul is not going to give us a formula by which we can uh, determine exactly where and how to draw the line. Although I, I do think there are some things that uh, we can infer on that from what Paul says, but, but he himself is going to draw a very hard line on a particular point of doctrine. In fact, he's not just going to draw a line, he is going to uh, cut a channel in granite on this point of Christian teaching. So uh, look with me at Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
And so this is probably the strongest reaction we see some, from Paul in the New Testament. Uh, Paul provides a rebuke to the Galatians because he says they are turning to a different gospel. And so if we're going to understand what exactly Paul is saying, one of the first questions we need to ask is, okay, according to Paul, what is this, this gospel? Uh, the, the word gospel, the Greek word translated by the English word gospel, literally means good news. Okay, so this is uh, good news about something, but what kind of good news are we talking about? Is this like uh, good news, you won the lottery? Or um, what kind of good news is it? Incidentally, I don't think that's necessarily good news. It seems like most people I read about who win the lottery, that's not good news for them. Things do not go well. So, um, but, but this is good news. What kind of good news is it? And in order to answer that question, I want, to, I want you to keep your finger there in Galatians 1 and look over with me at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is another Pauline text, also written by the Apostle Paul. And he tells us here very explicitly uh, what his gospel is. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, he says this, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So uh, Paul is reminding them about the gospel he preached to them. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so, um, this is something he says that is of first importance. And if we think about different levels of false teaching and uh, some levels of false teaching being more serious than other areas of false teaching, how seriously in error is the false teaching which compromises that which is of first importance, right? That's, that's by definition the most serious kind of error, and uh, false teaching, which teaches a wrong understanding of the thing that is most important to understand, is um, uh, the, the worst false teaching that there is. And it's false teaching about the gospel, false teaching about the good news of Christianity. Uh, but again, what is the good news? Paul says, uh, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So, so that's Paul's summary of the Gospel. And there are um, a couple of different components. Paul says uh, it is that Christ died for our sins. So uh, one of the ways that we could think about sin would be to think about what it is that God created us to do. Uh, what it is that God commanded human beings to do in the world when he uh, created us and placed us here. And uh, one of the things, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, one of the things that uh, God commissioned Adam and Eve to do was to exercise dominion over the earth. 
right? We are created in God's image. And as, as God is a ruler over the creation, he has created us to be rulers of the, the creation here. Now, uh, there is a distinction between God and his creation, right? He didn't make us to be little gods where we have the ultimate authority and we exercise that authority. He, but he created us to rule under his ultimate authority. And uh, one of the ways that we can think about sin is by thinking about ways that we failed to do that. Right? So he has given us all spheres of influence. All of us have places where uh, we have some level of control. And, and he has given us his word to dictate how we are to order our lives in each and every one of those situations. Uh, any failure to do that then constitutes sin. And uh, the fact of the matter is that we've all fallen short in that regard. We've all failed to exercise dominion over the earth in the way that God has called us to do. Um, and anytime we try to run our lives in our own way rather than looking to, to God, we fail to rule in the way that we are called to rule the world. And so that's what sin is. And in that sense, sin is an act of cosmic treason against the king of the universe. Right? God is the king. He has placed us as managers and stewards under his ultimate authority. When we rebel against him, that is an act of treason. And uh, since we have committed cosmic treason against a God who is infinitely holy, our rebellion is an infinitely great offense. Right? Because it's an infinitely great offense to misrepresent an infinite holy God in our administration of his kingdom. And consequently then, the punishment we deserve is likewise infinite. So uh, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says uh, Christ died for our sins and was buried, he's saying that by suffering and dying, Christ took upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our failure to govern the world under God's authority. And although Jesus himself lived a sinless life and he uh, executed every single one of God's command, he uh, exercised dominion in a way that was in perfect accordance with God's will, he stood in our place and bore the wrath of God on our behalf as he suffered and died on the cross. Uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, Paul says that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and, and so the resurrection of Christ is likewise a key component to the gospel message. You know, it's interesting today, uh, and, I'm, and I've been guilty of this myself. So um, a lot of times when the gospel is presented, sometimes the resurrection isn't included. And if you think about, um, there's, there's a book by Greg Gilbert called uh, What is the Gospel? A little book, I would recommend it. But uh, he gives an outline of the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. 
That's the outline. And so when we communicate the gospel, we need to say some things about God. We need to say some things about humanity. We need to say some things about Christ. And we need to call people to respond. And, and so sometimes when the gospel is presented, people will say, okay, well, God created us to uh, live according to his law, but uh, we rebelled against God. We failed to do that. And we therefore deserve God's judgment. The good news is Christ came. And when he died on the cross, he uh, took our penalty upon himself if we put our faith in him. Therefore, turn, repent, put your faith in Christ and, and be saved, right? And so that, that is a, essentially the gospel message, but you'll notice there was no story of the resurrection in, in the way that I just presented that. And, and, but, but here with the Apostle Paul, the resurrection is a key component. Also, if you, the next time you read the book of Acts, there are lots of sermons that are summarized in the book of Acts. Uh, you can read sermons by, or at least summaries of sermons. I don't think it's the entire sermon, like they had a dictator there typing it out, but it's a summary of the sermon that Paul preached or that Peter preached or that Stephen preached. And when you read those, look at the content of those messages and think about how central the resurrection is to the message they proclaimed. Now, uh, why is that? Well, the significance of the resurrection is that, and there's, there's sort of a complicated, more complicated theological way of thinking about this and an easier way of thinking about this. So I'll give you the one and then I'll uh, simplify it. But, but the significance of the resurrection of Christ is that it is the inbreaking of the end time new creation about which the Old Testament prophets speak, such as Isaiah 65, 66, such as uh, we see in Revelation 21. And uh, if you've read Revelation 21, you, you know that there is a time in the future when there will be a new creation. And uh, you don't have to look very far or think very hard to recognize that the world we live in is a messed up place. It is a fallen world and things are broken. And, um, you know, what would you expect in a world where people aren't doing what God has called them to do? If God says, um, you know, exercise dominion under my authority, here's the way I want you to do it, do X, Y, and Z, and people aren't doing X, Y, and Z, then that's sort of what we would expect. Um, and because of sin, God has brought a curse. Uh, tragically, the curse will culminate in the destruction of this age and the, the judgment of those who don't come to saving faith in Christ. But the good news is that through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus has brought a way by which his people and the creation can be renewed. And his resurrection is the beginning of that. Uh, each one of us has been raised with Christ. So the new life that we have, the renewal that we have, the, the changed hearts, the open eyes, the ears to hear, all of that is possible because of Christ's resurrection. And so that's why the resurrection is so central to the gospel. Uh, without the resurrection, we are still dead in our sins. And so uh, the, the simple way to put that is the, the, the new life that we experience in Christ where we begin to trust Christ and we delight in him. That is the significance of the resurrection. 
And, and so all of that is good news, right? That's the gospel that Paul preached, that through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ secured our forgiveness and renewal and new life so that we are being rescued from the curse that has come upon uh, the creation and uh, from the ultimate condemnation we deserve because of our rebellion. That's, that's Paul's gospel. So now going back to Galatians 1, uh, notice Paul rebukes the churches in Galatia because they were moving away from that gospel and they were turning to a, a different gospel. And one of the things we can observe about this is how strong Paul's rebuke is. In uh, most Greco-Roman letters, you know, they have conventions for letter writing. We, we have conventions for uh, writing letters and we normally say, uh, dear so-and-so at the beginning, sincerely, and we sign at the end, right? That's a convention. And they likewise had conventions. Their conventions were different than our conventions. So uh, one example would be they would begin the letter with, uh, by indicating who the letter was from, which actually makes more sense than the way we do it, right? Because when you get a letter and you open up a letter and look at it, it's like, okay, well, who is writing this to me? It would be good if it, like said, right at the top. And, uh, and, you know, maybe we have a return address or whatever we could look at. They didn't have that. And so uh, the, the person who is writing the letter begins by identifying himself. Uh, the second thing is that the uh, recipients, the, per the people receiving the letter, they are then identified. And then uh, thirdly, that would be followed by some kind of greeting. Now, Paul follows that convention. Uh, he follows it to the T in all of his letters. The, the fourth thing that you would generally have would be an expression of thanksgiving or prayer or praise. And uh, again, this is true not just within the Christian faith. This is true across Greco-Roman society. So, you know, the... the the polytheists who believed in uh, a variety of gods, they would praise the various gods and uh, give thanksgiving to the various gods. Uh, Paul Christianizes that, and, uh, and he follows that pattern in every single one of his letters except this one. He, and in this letter, he doesn't do that. He skips those customary uh, remarks, the thanksgiving, and he goes immediately into how amazed he is that the Galatians are abandoning the gospel. So, you know, you could imagine if, if I wrote an email, right? Because we don't really write very many letters anymore. Actually, we don't really write emails anymore. It's like, what, you write emails? You're in the Stone Age, man. Now we just send text messages. But let's pretend we, we write emails. And uh, I'm going to visit a friend in Colorado, Bob. And so I write him an email. I say, uh, hey, Bob. I, I probably wouldn't just say, hey, Bob, can I stay at your house on this date? Let me know. Steve, right? I would probably write something like, hey, Bob. How's it going? How's the family? I've been praying for you about this thing. The reason I'm writing is I'm wondering, I'm going to be in Colorado on such and such, right? So you have these formalities up front that are just a normal part of communication. But, but imagine that I'm not writing Bob because I'm coming to visit him. I'm writing him because I'm upset with him, which you know, I, if I was upset with him, I probably wouldn't write to him. I would probably talk to him face to face, but that messes up my illustration. So, 
I'm writing to him, I'm upset with him, and let's say he's done some grave and serious thing. Let's say he's been unfaithful to his wife or something like that. And, and so if I'm writing to him, I might write something like, uh, Dear Bob, I am in utter disbelief right now. Right? And by skipping the, the pleasantries and the formalities, it, uh, it brings a certain weight to the tone of the letter. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here. Right? He, he draws attention to the gravity and the seriousness of the issue that he's bringing into focus by uh, foregoing the normal um, remarks of thanksgiving or praise. And so uh, Paul is serious about this. Also notice uh, verse 10, Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? And uh, reading letters in the New Testament, epistolary literature in the New Testament, is it, sometimes like hearing one end of a phone conversation where you, you, you sort of have to piece together what's going on uh, on the other end of the line. And, and there are certain places in Paul's letters and other letters in the New Testament where you have to do that kind of thing. I think this is uh, one of those places and we have to kind of try to reconstruct the situation or um, see what might be implied by what he's saying. And, and it seems that what Paul's doing here is that some of his opponents, some of the, the false teachers were criticizing Paul or they were probably criticizing Paul because he, um, they, they were accusing him of being a, a man pleaser. They were accusing him of being a pe people pleaser and just telling the, the, the Christians what they wanted to hear. And so here in verse 10, by the, the strength of his rebuke, Paul is giving evidence that he's not just concerned with pleasing man. He's telling them something that he knows they don't want to hear. He's telling them something intentionally in order to unsettle them. And he's giving them such a strong rebuke that no one's going to make the mistake that he's just trying to please men. And and so all of this underscores the, the seriousness of, of Paul's tone. Perhaps more than all of that in terms of seri the seriousness of the issue in Paul's mind is the language of the passage itself. In uh, verse 8, Paul says, uh, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. And, uh, and then he repeats it in verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you other than, uh, a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And so you can imagine that we're, we're here this morning and I, I'm in the middle of teaching and the, the ceiling open, opens in a supernatural event and a, an angelic being appears with uh, more beauty than you have ever beheld in your life, uh, so much so, in fact, that your initial gut instinct is to uh, bow down and begin to worship this being. And the being proclaims a message from God, and yet that message does not accord with the message of the gospel. Paul says, let that angel be eternally condemned. Right? So, so Paul couldn't be more emphatic. Uh, nothing really could be more serious. The, the Galatians were in danger of turning to a different gospel. 
And evidently what had happened was uh, some of the false teachers came in and they were teaching that in order to be made right with God, there were certain Old Testament laws that you had to obey. Uh, particularly, uh, the law of circumcision had to be uh, followed. And so, uh, this, this, this false gospel then was a gospel not of what Christ had done through his death and resurrection, but of what the Galatians needed to do in order to uh, merit God's favor. And uh, Paul says, that's really no gospel at all. Right? The good news of the gospel is what Christ has done on our behalf. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He has brought us new life by his resurrection. And if we have to keep a set of laws in order to be made right with God, that's not good news, right? Uh, that's no gospel because the whole problem and reason that we're not right with God in the first place is because we failed to keep his laws. Uh, we have failed to exercise dominion, to... Uh, administrate our vice regency in a way that is commensurate with what God has revealed. And if I, uh, if I fail in that way, then uh, the, the idea that I would need to do something, that I would need to um, follow God's law in order to have him to be pleased with me is uh, quite hopeless for me. And one of the things that we need to be saved from is our efforts to save ourselves because our best efforts to save ourselves actually just compound our guilt, right? Uh, Isaiah says that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags and we need a savior to rescue us from our lawlessness and our sin and our rebellion, which is why Paul is so upset with the false doctrine these teachers are, are presenting. Uh, but, but the even more outrageous thing, perhaps, in Paul's mind was that the Galatians were actually buying into this, right? They were actually accepting on some level, and we don't know on what level, but they were accepting this false gospel. And so the point that Paul is making is to say that the fact that the Galatians were in danger of abandoning God and turning to a different gospel is an eternally serious error of the most wicked kind, right? It's, it's really, really bad um, because uh, a lot of bad things happen in the world, right? Horrific things. And we could read thousands of accounts of different stories. Uh, there was a, there, there's a book out there called Machete Season about the genocide that happened in Rwanda where uh, neighbors went out with machetes and killed their neighbors, right? And it's told from the perspective of the people who did the killing, right? And you read accounts like that, and that's one of thousands of examples, literally, of uh, horror stories we could read about the, the suffering and the misery that exists in this falling wo fallen world. And yet, that suffering and misery um, is, it, it pales in comparison to the suffering and misery that comes with rejecting the gospel. Right? Because temporal suffering cannot be compared to eternal suffering. And so that is why Paul is concerned. Um, I've talked a lot about Paul and the Galatians, and I'd like to think 
for a little bit about, okay, well, you know, how does this apply to us? And on one level, I don't think that's a, an especially difficult question to answer because uh, the message that uh, Paul presents to the Galatians is the, the same message that we need to take away from the text, which is simply that we need to hold fast to the gospel. Right? That's, that's the application for us. And, uh, and so what are some ways then we might be tempted or there might be example where the gospel is being compromised in our own day? And um, one, one example, I think that it probably doesn't apply to any of us, but uh, might be a, a good segue into thinking about uh, other contemporary examples is there is a false gospel that is out there of uh, salvation by baptism. Right? You've probably encountered this and within the Roman Catholic Church, some other religious traditions, many people believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And uh, some people believe that baptism actually saves you, that the, the, the kind of new life that we have as a result of Christ's resurrection is uh, infused at baptism or something like that. And, and so... That is maybe one of the closest modern day equivalents to the kind of false teaching that was taking place in the churches in Galatia. Because for the churches in Galatia, it was an issue of circumcision. For the contemporary example, the issue is baptism. Uh, most of us in the Protestant tradition um, understand that baptism doesn't save us. But uh, something that is maybe sort of close to that, that is prevalent in, let's say, certain evangelical circles, would be the false gospel of salvation by praying the prayer, right? And, uh, you know, if, if you are sharing the gospel with someone and someone comes to saving faith in Christ and you want to lead that person in a prayer, more power to you. I think that's uh, good and uh, appropriate. But uh, we need to be careful, careful to guard against leading someone in a prayer in such a way that when they finish praying the prayer, they believe that they're okay because they prayed the prayer. Right? Because the prayer, doing the thing, that's not what ultimately saves them. And, uh, you know, this can happen maybe because we, we don't want someone to question their salvation and we want them to have assurance, which is sort of weird because, you know, in the New Testament, there are places where under certain conditions, uh, we, we should question our salvation, such as 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, Paul says. But, um, but, but, you know, we come to someone and we say, okay, well, you know, if you're not saved, then, and if you're not sure about what you're standing before God is, you can be certain. And if you just pray this prayer along with me and you pray it sincerely, then um, you, you don't have to question your salvation again. And, and sometimes I think what people hear in that is they hear, okay, well, the only thing I have to do then to be saved is to pray this prayer. It's like salvation by works, and it's a really simple, easy work. It's just, you know, I just have to, to pray the prayer. And, uh, and that's really no different than thinking that the only thing you have to do to get saved is to be baptized, right? It's just replacing one with the other. Uh, sometimes 
an altar call can function in a similar way. And, uh, you know, if you don't know what an altar call is in some uh, church traditions, at the end of every sermon, the pastor will preach the gospel message and then invite people to come forward and kneel up front as a way of uh, publicly declaring that they are um, accepting Christ as their Savior for the first time. And in churches like that, you know, you have families and you grow up in that kind of environment, uh, almost everyone in the church when they got saved, they walked the aisle. And so it's easy to, to conflate the two things. But um, we don't want people to come away thinking that they're saved because they prayed a prayer or raised their hand or walked an aisle or knelt up front or because they were baptized or circumcised or anything else. We want our salvation and our understanding of salvation to rest solely upon what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so we need to hold fast to the gospel. And we need to be uh, diligent in that regard. Uh, this is the one thing that we cannot compromise at any cost. And if the, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, uh, the main thing is the gospel, period. So let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.